0: Hello, I'm Marie Neumann. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is Holding My Own Pen, and I have the privilege of talking to actress, singer, and social activist Jawahir Peterson. She will tell us about her journey of self-rediscovery, and Healing After Trauma. Welcome, Jawahir.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Margaret. This is such an honor.
0: To our listeners, after our conversation, Jawahir will give us her three best tips on self-care. And then it will be fun question time. Jawahir, you are a well-known actor and singer, but I don't think everybody knows that you are an ex-clinical social worker, and a
1: proud advocate for social issues. Yes, yes. I studied social work. I've got a master's degree in clinical social work, and I specialized in psychotherapy with a focus area on um, adolescent and family intervention. Um, And yes, I'm a proud advocate for mental health, particularly in the times that we are living now.
0: You suggested our topic today, which is holding my own pen. So I'm wondering what that means to you.
1: Um, Yeah, so I try to summarize it as a theme. And that's sort of how I have navigated um, processing trauma and grief and just my own mental health. And I think you know it starts from from what we as 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 those who work in in mental health call the life script so even when you know when you conceived um, your parents, your grandparents, the society that you live in, the community that you raised in has sort of a script of how they view your life to be this child that's on its way, uh, where this child's life is going, what this child's going to be like, where the child fits in with into the micro and macro systems. Um, and I think I was born into a life script. I was the eldest child of my parents' marriage. Um, and being in you know, a cape malay uh, colored you know being the elder sister and you know we call it the titi comes with a certain level of responsibility that you almost inherit because of your birth order um and you know my fa- my parents being the musical you know people that they were my father being the legend that he was um i think certain expectations And being the template child, because the first child, being a mother myself, I can relate to that, that the first child is sort of the template, the one that you, the guinea pig, that you try all your parenting, you know, all your parenting skills, you try it out with that one. And Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of things were sort of prescribed to me in terms of roles, responsibilities, personal characteristics, personality traits, um, archetypes and things. That I had to fulfil because of the life script that I was born into. Of course, unbeknownst to my parents and to me, because no one can foresee the future, things were going to happen in my life and in our family's life that would alter sort of the axis of the world that that you live in. But those that life script sort of remained so the basic storyline if I can use that metaphor the basic storyline is there Um, you just have to sort of mold yourself within that storyline so at the age of 35 I now find myself back in therapy um, just to redefine how I see myself and away from and separate from and discarding a lot of what I think was prescribed for me by my life script in how I see the world, how I position myself in the world, the place I hold in the world um, and how I connect to myself. And so in terms of a life script, I'm now at a point where I think I'm holding my pen. I'm, I'm holding my own pen to author, to write my own life script. Yes.
0: And today we're going to talk about very dramatic things that happened in your life. Before you Mm -hmm. tell us what happened when you were 20-year-old, which I'm sure had a huge effect on your life script, um, could you just for those who, who may be listening, maybe from other countries and who don't know about your father and mother, could you just say something about them, who they were?
1: Okay, so, um, my mother, uh, was born Valma Priscilla Anders, reverted to Islam and then became Madiha Anders, um, very talented singer, um, and she was the lead role of District Six, the, in the, in the lead role of District Six, the musical that was written by my late father, Tully Peterson, and the other legend, David Kramer, um, District Six, the musical, I think one of the most successful musicals to come out of this country, had toured, um, the world, um, and really, was the first I think in terms of a voice for coloured people um, post-apartheid and how it affected, particularly the community of District Six with the Group Group Areas Act, when District Six was declared a white only zone, white only area, and um, people of colour were forcibly removed from District 6, and so my father was a musical director, my mother was the lead singer, um, they fell in love, and then, um, yeah, so I'm the product of, of, of that musical love, um, and yeah, so my father, Tali Peterson, then went on to write numerous musicals, I think the one most um, notably is Cutting the Kings, that won the Laurence Olivier Award um, for Best New Musical, in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, um, for best new musical, best choreography, best actor, and you know was in the same category as people like Andrew Lloyd Webber and David Cromer uh, and Tali Peterson. Were the first South Africans, and I think, sent under correction, the only South Africans to date mm. to hold a Laurence Olivier Award.
0: Mm. Thank you. Yeah, and then when you were 20 years old,
1: um, tragedy struck tragedy stuck indeed and i think what people don't know um i think is it wasn't as big as as of a, a, a media frenzy um so let me go back to to the first attempt because i can say these things as facts now because after the three year long court case all these things um, then came out as fact that, um, so my mom and dad were married um, uh, for nine years. They got divorced then, um, and we went on a weekly custody arrangement. So from Sunday to Sunday, from 6 to 6, you're with one parent, and then from 6 to 6 of the following week, you're with the other parent, and that's how it would go biweekly. Um, and then my father remarried my mother's best friend, Najwa, Um, and, um, they, they were married. And then in April of 2006, I had just come home from work. Uh, I was working at Edgar's Red Square, um, in the waterfront. And I say this now because the shop is no longer there. And I want this to be in a time capsule so that I, so that our listeners can reflect and go back and, oh yes, remember there was a time when there was Red Square. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had just got back from work and, uh, my sister, my younger sister, was at my dad's home she just had her tonsils removed uh, because when i was 18 i had had enough of the weekly weekly custody arrangement and then made the decision to live permanently with my dad Um, and my younger sister who was 12 at the time um, she's the youngest of my parents four children came knocking on my door and uh, because she had her tonsils removed her voice and her vocal ability was obviously compromised and she whispered and she says uh Titi, daddy's calling you, but something doesn't sound right. And I then get up and I go over to the bedroom, which was on the other side of the house. And I can hear he's calling my name, but it, it definitely doesn't sound right. So I knock on the door um, and nobody answers. So then I open the door and my younger sister, bearing in mind is still standing behind me. And I go inside and the room is completely dark um, except for the light from from a little television um, that my my dad was watching and but I can't see neither my dad nor my stepmom in the room and I, I say dad dad we are you and he says put on the light but don't freak out and his voice doesn't sound at all like him so I put on the light and these images I think will live with me till the day I die. Um, the room was filled with blood. There was blood on the bed sheets, on the carpets, mm. on the blinds, on the telephone. There was blood everywhere. And I still don't see them. And um I'm also mindful of the fact that my younger sister standing behind me, and my life script is that you as the eldest, your role is to be the substitute parent. So you you protect them as you would protect yourself and you protect them as you would if you were their mother. So I tell Fatima, my younger sister, to take a step back. Um and I step into the room and I look into my to my right, past the built-in cupboards, and there is my stepmother crouched, sort of not even crouched, but sort of on the on the floor, um, with a long, I, I think a shogun chef type of knife in her hand aimed at my dad and my dad is hunched over her holding her hands and the knife away from himself but mind you they're both covered in blood and at this point my sister Fatima has now entered the room and has witnessed this and I tell her I shout at her to please just go out of the room don't see this Um, and I have not at that point yet established the who's injured the severity of the damage that kind of thing and I go over to him, and he's stra—he's struggling to get the knife out of her hand because it—it it was very clear that she was trying to to stab him. Or, and I go over and I say, "Dad, who's bleeding?" And he doesn't answer. And I say, "Dad, who is bleeding?" And eventually, he says in a very croaky voice, "Me." And um, in that moment, he she drops the knife um, and my dad hands it to me. Fatima was still in the room and I hand it to her and he says to us, tell Cookie, that was one of our, our, our domestic assistants, to rinse it off and also put all the knives, hide all the sharp objects away immediately. And I'm not sure at this point where he's bleeding from. And my stepmother goes in sort of like a seizure mode and I fight or flight kicks in and I've got to get medical services, medical attention immediately because then I established my father's bleeding from the neck. And obviously one thing's jugular vein, you don't have much time. So I call, uh, for, for medical help. Um, and then I called Najwa's father as well, who was, delaying answering the call and in this time my father is bleeding and he is bleeding and he is bleeding. Um, My younger sister Zainab, who was six at the time turning seven or she was seven uh, born from that marriage she had also then woke up and came upstairs and so trying to protect the two of them from seeing that and in that time telling um, Fatima to get dish towels or, or, or cloths or whatever so we can put, apply pressure to my dad's neck and also to to try and control the bleeding um, and I rushed downstairs to the driveway where our neighbor then you know came over and said because you can hear the commotion to check that everything was okay and in the panic and I said oh, she stabbed him and I don't know what to do and then the neighbor then rushes up to see what he can do and then I did something that I had to sit in many sessions of therapy to process um, because, again, it went against the life script. It went against the essence of, of who I was and the role that was given to me by my birth order. Um, I said to my 12-year-old sister, Fatima, you need to do this for me. You need to go up there. And do your best to keep daddy alive. Because if daddy died in my arms, I wouldn't be able to survive it. I wouldn't be able to. And I gave the responsibility for for keeping my dad alive to my younger sister that went contrary to everything that I had done through my parents' divorce, through post-divorce, through everything. I had given that responsibility that was always mine to my younger sister. Um, And all the while living with the fear that that he was going to die. When I eventually went back inside, once the ambulance had arrived, my father had changed into a black T-shirt so that even though while the blood was dripping, it wouldn't be as traumatic for us to witness. Um, Long story short, um, it missed his jugular um, and he survived. Mm-hmm. And um, he survived. But the, the trauma of that experience, because my stepmom then went into a psychiatric facility. But, of course, um, my father being in the public eye didn't want this to leak out to the to the media. So it was very hush-hush. Um, and, you know, the cleaning up of, of what was essentially a crime scene, you know, had to be done at home and, Um, thereafter, we then lived until the December uh, with with my stepmother that, you know, we had become very had become very clear that she was mentally unstable. But, you know, mental health, it was not something that we spoke about it. We just sort of had to get on with it. So they had then slept in separate bedrooms and my stepmother was never allowed to be behind us or walk behind us without announcing herself. So, for example, if we're coming down the stairs and she's behind us, we'd walk sideways so that she's not directly behind us, so that we're always vigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, all sharp objects were kept away and we had to sort of um, have hiding places for fear of, you know, what she could potentially do. Um, and then on December the 15th, Two thousand and six, um we had all gone to a twenty first birthday with and it it was my stepmom's niece and nephew's twenty first birthday and we had celebrated the birthday. it was beautiful. And then it was also, you know, the opening of Adley Street's night market pre COVID. Um Cape Tonials will know it was a big thing in Cape Town. Um the streets were blocked and it is just it's, it's so liquor, it's just liquor. Mm. And um I had the last thing I said to my dad um, as he left, he says, I'll call you tomorrow because that was a Saturday and the Sunday. We were going to take a drive out um, to look for potential venues for my 21st birthday. And he wanted me to see this property that he wanted to buy and so just have some sort of daddy daughter time. And he says to me, um, Love you, and because that was his name for me, Lavi Jawaja, Jawa. and I said, "Love you too, Dad." And he said, "I'll call you tomorrow." And that was that. And later that evening, um, my my then- boyfriend, now husband, gets a phone call to say that we have to come home." And he didn't say, my, my boyfriend, husband didn't say anything, but instinctively, I knew. It was something about my dad. It was something to do with my dad, and all the way home, driving on the highway. And I think it took me about eight years to recollect that drive, um, because I was operating with so much adrenaline uh, that my body was almost separate from myself. I was that that drive home was an out of body experience, where I kept trying to ask him what happened, what happened to my dad, and he said, "We'll see when we get there," and one of the neighbors. Um, phones me and says that I have to come down. I have to come home immediately. Somebody shot my dad. And I say, um, but he's alright. Obviously, he's my dad. He's fine. He says, just come home. And I pull up at the house, um, and there are police fans, and there are people there, and there's uh, tape, police tape already. And there is a guy outside our house on the corner Um Speaking to his father on the phone, and he is yelling to his dad on the phone. He's dead. He's dead And that's how I found out that my father Was dead. I then turned around and yelled into the street My daddy's dead. My daddy's dead Um, and I ran into the house and my siblings had arrived at sort of just after me. And I run into the house and the policeman is obviously trying to stop me because it's a crime scene. And I start yelling and screaming at him with profanity, which is very unlike me, mm-hmm. to let me through. Let me through. It's my dad. This is my dad. And he allows us to go. And we can only go as far as the bottom of the steps because further up there are there's detectors and investigators and forensic specialists, they're all there, but I can see the blood that is dripping from the from the top balcony down. Um and my siblings are behind me. And I stop them and I turn around and I go back outside and I said, You guys are not gonna see that. That is not gonna be the last image that you have of daddy. And we spent that night, um, and my stepmother was at the back and she was heaving and Um, beside herself, completely traumatized and, you know, was being sedated. And at this stage, we had no idea what had happened, how it had happened. All we know is that he was shot and he was now dead. And we were sitting outside that house. Um, So my father, I, I think, was shot on the 15th but was declared dead on the 16th. So the 15th of December, he died, and the 15th of Jan was my 21st. Hmm. So we sat outside that house um, until about 4 o'clock in the morning, waiting for what was daddy (laughs) six hours before that, which then became the body, for the body to be taken away from, from the home. We sat out there with a media circus happening behind us. Every newspaper, every news broadcaster trying to get an interview. Um, Social services obviously dispatched uh, trauma counselors to try and speak to us. My brother, who was 13 at the time, started running and people were running after him. and, And he had no idea why he was running. His body just told him to physically run. And he just ran because it was just so unfathomable what was happening to us. Um, So yeah, on December uh, 2006, December 16, 2006, um, our dad was murdered, execution style, tied up like an animal, and in shots in the back of his head, yeah, to to, uh, less than a meter outside my bedroom door.
0: Yeah, one has no words. When listening. No.
1: <laughs> one doesn't have and, I, and I'm almost surprised I'm catching myself being able to tell this the story without being completely shattered and mm. emotionally overwhelmed recounting this experience which I think is just indicative of of the growth and of the journey uh, I'm not mm. saying that this is at all easy to recount I mean I feel it in my body I can feel the lump in my throat, yes. I can, my eyes are obviously welling up with tears. But um, because retelling the story, um, a defense mechanism was, was always to retell the story as though it happened to someone else. Mm. Because if you actually sit and you sit with your body and you sit with that reality that this is what happened to you, it becomes physically overwhelming, emotionally overwhelming to process Um, so, yeah, being able to tell the story separate from oneself, I think is what is, what has helped. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course the story didn't end there. Um, that, you know, in that month, uh, as I said, from 20 to 21, um, so much happened, so much changed.
0: Yeah, and we are looking at this within the context of your whole journey. So maybe you could talk more about what happened after that month and the new person you had to become.
1: The new person that I had to become. I don't think it was entirely a new person that I became. I think that role was just further entrenched unexpectedly and um, the concept of rising up um, and stepping up. Mm. Just became something that I had to love because, as I said, my parents got divorced when I was very young. And because we had done the weekly custody arrangement, um, the four of us and we call ourselves the power of four, um, because the day that our dad died, he had returned from from London. Um, the Thursday evening, where the last musical that uh, Kramer Peterson had put together was Guma, that had just opened um, on the West End, and he had returned home the Thursday. And on the Friday, there there was a a concert where my brother sang with my father for the first and last time. And the Saturday, my which was usually sort of let's go to the movies, let's do something together, which was a usual thing. Uh my father said, instead of movies, let's go do some shopping at Canal Walk. So if you know new Tully Peterson at all, <laughs> he was extremely impatient. Um, you know, things had to follow a particular schedule, a particular order. And, of course, being the public figure that he was, he tried to stay away from public spaces when he was with his children because that came at the price of being stopped by every second person in the mall. And this was before the time of cell phones and selfies and things. So people would stop and have a conversation with him. And, of course, a two-minute hello will turn into a five-minute reminisce of going down memory lane and we're just standing there waiting for daddy. Um and he 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 went and he said to us in the car, um, because, you know, the four of us and our younger sister Zainab was in the car. And he had spoken to each of us from myself down to Zainab, because we have an older sister, Natasha, that lives in Johannesburg uh, from my father's previous relationship, but she was born and bred in Johannesburg. Um, so the five of us were in the car and my dad, spoke to each of us individually and affirmed each of our strengths. And affirmed each of of each of us what we mean to him and how he sees us and what he celebrates uh, about us and you know the areas of growth you know Jawaid you're extremely intelligent and you but sometimes your mouth your mouth is too fast or um, you know Aisha you are my my fighter child you are my one that you know doesn't stand back for anybody etc and Ashu you are the thorn amongst the roses and and Fatima you and so he he handles and. I had a feeling while he was doing this that something is different about this. Actually, at one point that I said, Dad, are you dying? Mm. And he said, don't be silly. I'm fine. I'm I'm fine. You know, I just missed you guys. I haven't seen you because I was in London. Um, And that day he was was patient because I wanted to introduce him to Kawaii and and you know natural foods and that kind of thing and he went shopping with us and he was so patient and let us try on outfits and he would sit in the dressing room and we'd model it for him and he'd be like Mm-mm, that top is just a bit too tight or a bit too short try, get another one but so unlike him there was a calmness about him there was patience about him there was just him being completely present. To us, because he was extremely busy all the time, that he was just present to us and that there was something different about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he tragically passed, and because he had passed on a Saturday, and the Sundays, the mortuaries have skeleton staff, or they don't operate. But because we're Muslim, you have to be buried before the next sunset. And so we waited and waited and waited for the body. And as this was happening, you know, people were flying in from far and wide, political, political leaders, political prophetic people were arriving. Um, You know, because, you know, the, the size, the magnitude of my dad's funeral, as I said, was such a blur at the time that when we got the photographs of people, um, we didn't realize how massive the funeral was. Um, and then that was the Sunday and the Monday we had to be at Balville Police Station to do, give our statements because it's now an investigation. Um, and rem- this is 48 hours after the reality of our fathers was was being murdered and the sunday before which was his funeral um sorry i have to just go back into the car into that saturday when we were driving in the car with him on our way to canal walk he made the four of us promise and he excluded Zainam because she was little um little mm-hmm. but we were the four that was born from from you know same mother and father And he said to us and he made us promise um, that, you know, the four of us, we have each other. That's what we have. And he says, if anything, God forbid, ever happens to our parents, we only have each other. And he made us swear and literally put our hands on top of one another, like, you know, a serious, solemn oath that no matter what happens in life, you're always there for each other. If one succeeds and, you know, gets a massive property in Constantia. You don't leave the other one on the Cape Flats. You go and fetch the other one on the Cape Flats and you take them up with you. If one climbs the corporate ladder, you send the ladder back down to your brother and sister. You stick together, you band together regardless, and you're there for each other. And you make this oath to me today that the four of you, no matter what happens, that you are there. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, sure, okay, this 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 is getting me now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, as we stood around my father's dead body, um, with and, I, and I'm, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but these are the graphic images that that still live in my mind, that act sort of as a backdrop to to the trauma, uh, the trauma flashbacks. We stood there with with the with my father's bleeding wounds from his head and his mouth and his, you know, still there. And I said, guys, he's here. Now I know why he said what he said yesterday. Mm. And the four of us put our hands, as we did the day before in the car, on top of each other, on top of his folded hands, his folded dead hands, and reestablished that solemn oath that no matter no matter what happens, we have the hashtag power of four. Yes, because we were, we only then, the following month, and for the months and years to come thereafter, realized what he meant and how powerful that pact was going to be for us to go through and see each other through the insurmountable amount of trauma that we were going to face. So the Monday, we then went, and it was an investigation, and this is now in December. So my father's estate is frozen. Um, I had to move out of what was now a crime scene. Uh, my stepmother had taken a step back from us completely, um, and because my father's estate was was frozen, um, the, the kids, were, the rest of them besides me, were all minors. Um, So, maintenance, those kind of things were all frozen. Um, And I had to step up. I had to step up. So, the January school reopens, there's no way we can pay school fees. We can't guarantee that we can pay school fees because our breadwinner is deceased and his estate is frozen. Um, How am I going to apply for varsity and how am I going to, you know, pay, pay the deposit for anything? Um, And then I started working two jobs. So I got the job um, as a presenter for a Islamic magazine program, my first ever television presenter gig, which my father, thankfully, was alive to witness and was working part time as um, at the Clarence counter. And then was also a full time student. Um, But, you know, we had to make a plan. We had to make a plan to survive, and of course, there was enough going on in the media around the around my father's murder that you know the private battles that we were facing was happening very privately. When we came home from the funeral that Sunday night, um, in fact, when we came home the Saturday night, the early hours of the Saturday morning when my father had passed, my brothers and sisters, you know, went to they went to fetch their mattresses, and we all slept in my bedroom, and we slept in my bedroom. Together for about a month,
0: mm.
1: on the you know one on the bed, one on the floor, one of just the four of us trying to fathom and hold each other while this was happening. And then six months six months later, which was the, the June of 2007, my stepmother was arrested for um, allegations of being the orchestrator of a hit on my father. And then the media circus and the the media and the murder trial um, began.
0: Yeah, and you had to be strong for your siblings in that time. You had to earn money apart from studying. And then you were struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder and I'm sure depression.
1: Oh, absolutely. I was falling apart. Um, That the March, um, actually the February, the late February of 2007, I was diagnosed with um, depression, uh, which I think looking back now, I had already been suffering from um, in my teen years already um, and anxiety and panic disorder. I was suffering from severe, severe panic attacks um, and was then put on medication. In that February, um, I was completely falling apart because uh, my father's the bail hearing that became a mini trial on its own at um, Weinberg Magistrate Court um, was happening. So I was attending the bail hearings, trying to function as normal and, of course, being faced with the, the reality of this person that was like a second mother to you. She was my mom's best friend, so I'd known her my entire life. Um, to try and fathom this level of betrayal and to hear that multiple attempts of murder of my father was being planned right inside our home, right at the supper table, right at the, you know, when we prayed together, these plans were being made unbeknownst to us. So try to fathom that kind of uh, betrayal. There's no other word that I can say. That kind of betrayal. That kind of. How is this happening to my life? Um, reality, trying to process that while trying to, to thrive at at university while trying to ensure that my brothers and sisters, because my sister was in a trick, my my one, the one that's born after me, Aisha. She was in the trick waiting for her results when my father was murdered. Um, the other two was in, in grade seven and eight, uh, when he died. So trying to ensure that the youngest one goes into high school on some sort of, some sort of stable footing. The one starts grade nine on some stable footing. The one enters first year varsity on some stable footing. Just trying to, because we have to bear in mind. That this was on the front page of every newspaper every day. This was the headlines of every news broadcast every day. This was on the posters of every newspaper on every poll every day. Every time we walked into a shopping mall, every time we walked into a space, people were talking about it. Everywhere we went, people were whispering behind our backs. Everybody. So, so the re-traumatization that was happening on this macro scale. While we had to put on this fake mask of bravado um, that everything is fine, everything and only behind closed doors could be completely fall apart because my mom was then now put into a completely single mother position um, and a single mother position after experiencing the betrayal by her best friend and um, both within her marriage and and with with the murder we as a family behind closed doors were hanging on by by something thinner than dental floss Mm. um so it it was an incredibly and i think looking back now i honest to god don't know how we did it i don't know how we did it Mm. so thankfully um uh, thankfully, it, it just it just happened. I really think God's hand was on us and um, the power of four picked because when the one was falling, the other one was picking the um, and the responsibility as the elder sister to ensure that I keep this boat afloat to make sure that if they don't have life jackets, that I've got a spare life jacket and if I don't have a spare life jacket, I'm going to take my proverbial life jacket off and give it to you because I cannot let you drown. So it was, sure, from, I I was 20 when he died. I was was 28 the following month, almost. In a month, I grew seven, eight years emotionally, um, unprepared, rapidly, prematurely, catapulted into adulthood in that month. Yes, and then
0: then many things happened because you graduated three times and you got mm-hmm. married, you had two children, mm. you reached mm. many other milestones. So yes. when you look back, how, how did that affect you that your father wasn't there and that you were in this
1: position? You know, Mariette, I, I, I I must say that... Uh, it getting married without him was very, very difficult. I think gradu graduating, oh my gosh, um, because what had then happened was I went my defense mechanisms and all the while battling depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder and intrusive anxiety attack, panic disorder symptoms, debilitating symptoms, which I can expand on that I don't think my peers at Varsity knew, that my colleagues at work knew the suffering that I was enduring, actually, um, underneath the surface. Um, that that I had worked twice as hard um, at Varsity because I had to get to the dean's merit list to in order to get bursaries and scholarships, to finish my studies, to pay for my studies, and so did my brothers and sisters. We had to work twice as hard so that you know we don't know how long the estate is going to be frozen. We don't even know if we're going to inherit anything because the reason my dad died was that was my stepmother wanted the life insurance. so she had ensured that the wool didn't exist. And that the life policy was in her name and those kind of things. So there was no guarantee. And to this day, we didn't inherit anything because that was the, his murder was was planned to a T for its end goal. Um And. When I graduated, because my father growing up in the apartheid era and uh, bud to education and so forth, was never going to be the, afforded the opportunity to go to a university other than UWC for colored people. So that when I got to 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 study, my father said, it's a non-negotiable. You're going to UCT. You have to get the marks. I don't care. My child is going to UCT. My people were not afforded that opportunity. My child is going to be first generation post-apartheid to experience and to relish in the freedoms that he made sacrifices for. So when I got to university and it was my first day and I I was initially there to study law um, and he walked me up Jamison's steps. To my first lecture, I think he was the only parent <laughs> amongst all the other first years basking <laughs> in the new independence who had arrived <laughs> with their father. But I think it was such a proud moment for him to walk up those steps and to walk onto what was previously a whites-only ed- um, educational institution and to know that his daughter is now, on, now in this space. And knowing what the sacrifices that he made during apartheid so that we could have this these opportunities, I think it meant more for him than it did for me. So that when I graduated, um, top of my class, Dean's Merit List, Golden Key Society, class medal, um, it was heartbreaking to not have him there and say, dad, I did it, I did it for our people. I did it for your family. I did it for the generations before us, for the slaves before us that was never gonna get this opportunity. And then the day after I graduated, the University of Cape Town bestowed an honorary doctorate to my father, which I then went to collect on his behalf. So, needless to say, it was very moving and sad because he deserves to collect that doctorate. He deserved for the 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 massive massive strides that he made for marginalized people in this country, for the storytelling of the marginalized colored people or mixed race people of South Africa, what he did for the musical landscape of South Africa, he deserved to have gotten that award in his own hands um and then of course me having graduated the day before that just made it even so much harder and then of course when I got the honors the following year, you know not having there not having him there for that it's just and then um even when I when even when I got the master's degree I mean it's just uh I just wish he was there to see it just there too because uh, my dad did not want me to study drama that was not an option for him because in those days and I, I get it now he was of the opinion of my darling you are Muslim you are colored you are female what opportunities exist on our local television for somebody who looks and sounds like you who speaks Afrikaans the way that we do you are going to play the stereotypical role of the gangster's wife or some, you know, the, all the stereotypes that exist around what my people, what people think my people are about. Um, and then he said, go and get, study something where you'll get a stable job, earn good money, et cetera. And so I went to study law. Um, and eventually that's also another story for another day. But I found myself um, studying social work. And he was also not very happy about that because social workers, you know, you're working for poor people. You're going to collect money outside the pick and pay with a tin. That's all social workers do. Um, And when I graduated with a master's degree with a specialist area and was successful, and I I say this not to be boastful, but I think just to be self-affirming, which is part of the journey that I'm on is that I was extremely good at my job. But to say to to my dad, this is why I was meant to study social work. This is why the universe puts me in the position of studying social work, because we didn't know that you were going to die. We didn't know the circumstances under which you were going to pass. And having become a social worker, having studied social work and having had the privilege of walking alongside people in the deepest, darkest hours became something of healing for me. So to just have have him witness that when I got married, um, which is a big step and and a big part of you know being getting married and my decision to keep my maiden surname, is to honor him, and to honor his legacy, and having these two amazing children that that, that I have that are and I say this. With probably complete bias, but they are so talented—naturally talented, musically talented, artistically talented children. My son is the carbon copy of my father. So there are moments, of course, when they do something that I just wished that I could phone my dad or or, or say, "Dad, just come down and watch, watch what your grandson is doing. Come and see that." So there are daily moments. Uh, there are daily moments that I wish that I so longed just to have him be present um, even if even if he didn't say anything but just to have his presence there to in a witnessing position um, to where we are now, how far we have come and how the impact of the pact that he made us make, um, has influenced our life so much and how, and I say this was so much, and this is what is going to get me teary-eyed, is how incredibly proud I am of my siblings and I for taking the massive curveballs, the curve boulders that life threw on us like anvils and made something, did something with it, rose above it, and continue daily to make efforts to rise above it. I am so proud of them, and I have no doubt that he'd be proud of us too. Yes.
0: Once again, I have no words when I listen yeah. to you. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Jawahir, <laughs> when you look back, when do you think that your healing journey start?
1: I'm I, i the, I'm going to wear away or move away from the word start because that would imply that it's finished. Um, oh, I my see. healing process, you see, mm-hmm. it's finished. Um, I have done healing in hindsight upon reflection. So if I look past, if I look back into the first aha moment of, sure, I'm healing, there are wounds that are healing here is that um, I had made the choice when I started practicing, when I started my first year um, as as an auxiliary social worker, to not work in the area of grief and loss because I just felt that as a practitioner, I wasn't confident enough in my own tools, in my own skill set to be able to be, Neutral to be able to be supportive and stable and strong enough to assist another walking that road when I myself was so vulnerable um, in dealing with issues of, of grief and loss. And it was only when I got to master's level and one of my, my, my lecturers who became my master supervisor said something completely in passing, but resonated with me so much is that he said, The universe sends clients or patients to you when you subconsciously or unconsciously need it the most. And that following day, a knock on my door. um, And it was a teacher coming to say that one of the learners in her class had just gotten the news that her father had suddenly passed away. Um, And... The learner um, has obviously gone home, um, but the child will come and see me when she returns. And that particular client, I will never forget her name. I will never forget the story. I will never because she shifted something in me because her going through the sudden loss of her father, I could as a witnessing position, as a practitioner, separate from that, everything she was saying resonated with me so much. How she felt like she was operating on a different realm, like her world is standing still, but everybody else's life is moving on. The resentment that you feel for others who are experiencing joy and happiness and the normalcy of life, the unconscious resentment that you feel because how dare they be happy when I'm suffering so much, or look at them being so carefree when I've got this massive burden to be. Everything that she was saying resonated with me so much because it was as though those those words were coming out of my mouth. And in hindsight, because as social workers, as, as psychologists, you have to go for regular supervision, which is regular sort of check in with another practitioner so that you can reflect and you can analyze and so that you can be fully cognizant, of your position when working with your patients or clients, and being aware of the, your own personal issues and how they can potentially contribute, um, benefit, or negatively influence your work with your with your client or patient. So, in hindsight, I think that's when I had an aha moment that, wow, I have been walking, I've been walking some some strides here, because the things that she was saying was not like daggers to my heart anymore but it was something that I, I I get what you're saying so it was something that was framed in 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 empathy and compassion because of the similarity or because of the shared experience rather than something that was framed as daggers or or pins that deflated the balloons of my life so that was definitely happening but happening. Post it happening, mm. if that makes sense.
0: It makes sense. But what I
1: had, yeah, yeah, and I think um, because as this con-, 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 con as this conversation develops, I have to also say that all of these things were not coincidental because I was a, a practicing social worker and I had to be const- constantly held accountable for the work that I was doing because as social workers, we also take an oath. To to do the best that we can for our our patients, and doing the best that you can is in, is ensuring also that you are the best that you can be in order to the, do the best that you can do for the person that that is entrusting you to hold them in the psychological space. And I had then had to make the decision to then go into therapy. And by then I had been, you know, in therapy on and off for, for different issues, for not just, um, the, the trauma of the murder, not just the trial that was happening, not just trying to manage, um, the, the panic attacks. So when I speak about the panic attacks and, and those who are going through panic attacks, those who experience panic, panic disorder, I want to use this opportunity to say to you, I get it. I get it. The hyperventilation, the, the the twitching of the eyes, the palpitations that you experience, the convinced emotion of I am dying right now. In my life, I have probably driven to myself to the ER or have rushed myself somehow or somebody has taken me to the ER at least eight times to have ECG machines on because I'm having a heart attack and I'm dying right now. Now, to feel like the world is spinning, like you cannot breathe, every vessel in your body is shaking and trembling, your mouth gets dry, you're getting lightheaded, you feel like you are going to faint. You, It is a debilitating and intrusive condition to live with. And if I wasn't a social worker, I would have suppressed that and continued living the facade of bravado that I was, but I'd had the responsibility because I took the oath to be a social worker, to get better, to be better, that I went into therapy, saw a psychiatrist, made sure that I was on on the proper medication to stabilize myself, so that the necessary healing could happen. That while I'm walking in the dark tunnel, I will eventually see the light. But while it's dark, You've, you need tools. You need tools. So, the medication was a flashlight. The therapy was also a, fla- a headlamp to help me find the light at the end. So, there were conscious decisions that I also had to make to ensure that I heal and that I overcome. Yes. And that's very
0: important, isn't it? Because if someone is listening to you who is suffering, they. Well, hear you say that there are conscious decisions involved in this reaching for help.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And which has brought me to the point where I'm at now because I felt almost hypocritical because apart apart from and another thing that not many people know um, but I am a a very proud ambassador for the Children's Hospital Trust for the Red Cross Children's War Memorial Hospital because when I was 11 I was in a near fatal uh, motor vehicle accident I was declared dead on site. I broke my my right femur the femur actually the biggest longest bone strongest bone in your body I broke it it broke it actually exited my body I lost feeling in two of my toes I broke my pelvis, I broke two ribs, one of the fractured ribs actually punctured my lung, Uh, broke my elbow, had facial and scar lacerations, declared it on site because I wasn't breathing because of the punctured lung. Red Cross Children's Hospital saved my life. Red Cross Children's Hospital, the surgeons, nursing staff, they saved my leg. Yes, it did take me six months of rehabilitation um, at Maitland Children's Maitland Cottage Children's Orthopedic Rehabilitation Center to learn to walk again, Um, but that near fatal that that near death experience at the age of eleven to become so so acutely aware of one's um, you know your your mortality at the age of eleven, I was so unconscious of how that actually gave birth to anxiety, how that fight or flight. Response was so highly activated that I had been living in fight or flight mode um, since the age of eleven, because when you become so, when you come so close to death, when you are so when you become daily reminded, you know when you look at your scars, and you you have a limp, and my one leg is still shorter than the other. I only got feeling back in two of my toes a couple of years ago. You know I I am day you know aware daily reminded. Of how close I came to death, um, and how that actually—that is one of the points. Points that in my therapy I had to go far, as far back as that, um, and relive the trauma to unpack the layer that was lying underneath the trauma of my my the experience of my father. That actually brought me, which was almost as if it was the last straw, the breaking point in in my nervous system, my parasympathetic nervous system, in my emotional capacity, my physical capacity that actually resulted in the onset of the panic and anxiety disorder.
0: So you are saying that one could generalize when there is a mental health issue and one gets the yeah. necessary help. It might end up making yes. sense to you like a jigsaw
1: puzzle. Like a jigsaw puzzle. But me, the problem that I developed, Mariette, is that I, we and society does this as a whole now. Defense mechanism of the culture of being busy. You know, mm-hmm. we, we are so busy. And we use that as such a defense mechanism, as such a crutch to get us through the day. We remain busy to avoid the reality, to avoid the potential of having to engage with that that people are fearful of therapy, people are fearful of of even touching the surface of what it is that they are going through. And for me, myself, I felt like such a hypocrite. And when I restarted my therapeutic journey a couple of months ago, I was in a place of feeling like such an imposter, such a hypocrite, because I was praising and, and I was and I was advocating for seeking men, for seeking help for one's mental um, illness. And I wasn't doing that for myself because I was so fearful of I'm coming here thinking that I just need to identify what the final piece of the puzzle is and the puzzle is complete, but then realizing that there are other pieces of the puzzle that are missing that were actually put in the wrong place or that actually you were doing the jigsaw puzzle wrong this whole time. That is the necessary work that needs to be done. And I will say it now and I will say it to people and I will say it because what you see on television, what you see on the magazine covers, that is obviously what the media wants us to see. But I am saying that there are days and there have been days that if I didn't have to get out of bed, I wouldn't. If I walked off the set And I had a panic attack through that entire scene. But I used the defense mechanism and I'm so grateful for the character that I play because I can separate my body and put my mind into her body and mind to allow me to defend against what is happening, what's experiencing within me. How many times I have driven to work popping an urban just to calm myself down, to convince myself that I'm not dying. So I will say this to you now that I am in no way saying that the healing process is easy. It is one of the hardest things that I have ever had to do in my life. When I thought going through the trial, I thought testifying in my father's murder trial was me being brave and courageous. No, it wasn't. That was me acting in survival mode. But me sitting with my therapist and my psychiatrist and being honest and truthful of how much I was suffering, that is bravery and courage. So that is what I want to say to those who are listening, who are contemplating, because you are causing yourself Unnecessary suffering. I can tell you from first hand experience, getting the help, it is hard. It is it it made me at times want to stop to not continue. And many people stop therapy because it just gets so hard. But if you push through, if you push through, and once you just see a flicker of light, when there was that one morning when I got out of bed and I didn't feel like a ton of bricks had fallen on me in the middle of the night when I could laugh at something, genuinely laugh at something, and not because that's the false bravado that I was putting on. I realized there's a shift happening. But you have to go through the absolute depths to the absolute pit of sadness and woundedness to get to that point. Thank you, Jawahir. Where can people follow you if they want to know more? Okay, so I um I'm not that great for social media. I'm a I'm a millennial, so um but I have surrendered to to Instagram, to TikTok, and to Facebook. So they um. I am trying to share as much as, as possible, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that, um, and many people do this. So I want to use this platform as well. That venting on social media is not, it's not helpful yes. because you are seek, you are seeking affirmation and you are seeking advice from lay people, who might either confirm your denial, who might either reinforce your suppression and refusal to engage with a potentially alternative narrative you are you are putting yourself on in a space where people might who don't have the full context who don't have the skill set and the tools to give you present you with opportunities to be self-reflective and accountable so i don't necessarily post things about my personal journey on social media because my personal g- journey is not the same as yours. And please, people, please, please, I'm getting on my soapbox here. Can we stop doing this? Can we stop doing this? When we go through something horrendous, the, what people say all the time, we say it to ourselves and we say it to each other, oh, but you know there are people going through so much worse. Mm. Do not do that. Do not minimize your suffering. Your, the, somebody going through a pinprick, that is the pain that you are experiencing, Who might, in in, in pain threshold, not compare to somebody that had an axe put into their skull, but the pain is pain. By minimizing your pain, you are suppressing it. And you are feeding into the denial, denial to not have to engage with it because you are comparing two relative, separate experiences. So I try my best. So I share my things as a hope as to inspire others to seek help. To know that just because you're on TV and people think you lead a successful career does not mean that behind that camera lens is not a human being who also goes through stuff, who also struggles, who also sits with mom guilt, who also juggles too many balls and feels overwhelmed, who also suffers from burnout, who also to this day is sitting with treatment and management for anxiety, post-traumatic disorder, and panic disorder.
0: Yes, and then your tips that you're going to give us actually dovetail with that because your tips are on self-care.
1: Yes, so what I realized that I had been doing is that – I had been giving my life jacket to everybody and anybody my entire life. And when you're in an airplane, um, the air hostess, they will tell you if there is a drop in air pressure and there's a crisis, your masks or oxygen masks will drop. Ensure that you put on your own air mask first and that yours is secured before you assist the children and those that need assisting. So I had to make this decision at the age of 35, after having two children and being married for 12 years, that I need to put my oxygen mask on first, because you cannot pour from an empty cup. You are of no help and of no service to anybody if you are wounded and you are hanging on by a thread. Mom guilt, feeling like I'm not enough, feeling like I'm not present enough or doing enough, and realizing that we all juggle balls in our life, we all juggle, we 've just got to decide which ones are rubber balls and which one are which ones are crystal balls. the rubber balls can bounce back i don 't have to reply to that email right now i don't have to answer that that whatsapp message right now it 's a juggle it's a ball a rubber ball it can bounce back. But if my child is ill and running a fever, that's a crystal ball, I've got to attend to that one first. If I am struggling and I'm in the middle of a panic attack, but I'm sitting with my child's homework, I've got to tap in and ask for help. So I'll tell my husband, I'm struggling at the moment, you tap in, I will go and deal with a crystal ball because my mental health is a crystal ball. So that I can pour from a full cup. Once I'm settled, once I've sat with anxiety attack and it's passed, I can now pour into my son's cup from a full cup. As self, it is not to take care of yourself and to say that you need help. And I say this particularly to men because I'm feeling so, and I don't want to say sorry for men because it almost feels like I am emasculating the man, mm-hmm. which is already a trigger for many men. I'm saying for you because there are so many risks and stigmatization around men seeking help. The culture of boys don't cry. the culture of you if you if you display emotions as a man, you are somehow weak. no, you are a human being. you are a human being. you have emotions like everybody else you society has done you a massive disservice by somehow creating and and over years of patriarchy made you believe that you're not entitled to feel sad, that you're not entitled to cry, that you're not entitled to feel emotions other than anger because that is somehow equates strength and somehow makes you worthy of your role as a man in society. Vulnerability is what makes you human. So seek help. See, there is nothing shameful in seeking help. And I want to use this platform also because it helped me so much also in knowing that the same way that we view physical health, if you have diabetes, there's no shame when you're taking your insulin. If you are you know, dealing with cancer, you are not shameful of your chemotherapy journey. So in that same way, can we not be shameful of medication to stabilize mental health? Can we not be ashamed? Can we not be stigmatized by seeking treatment for our mental unwellness? Self-care is so important. There is only one you. Thank
0: you, Jawahir. And now, with a change of tone, can I ask you your fun question?
1: Oh, I'm excited to hear this.
0: No, I did see something on social media and it was something delightful (laughs) because I saw (laughs) some pictures of you wearing really colorful socks. Yes. My question is, if you could design a special pair of socks for each of your children, what would each pair look like?
1: Okay, so this is a very fun question because, fun fact, I'm ex- I get cold all the time. I am perpetually cold, which doctors say are, are related to my anxiety, but I'm per- I'm per- I am perpetually cold. But when I started first year varsity, there was this trend called toe socks so that it looked like a glove, but for your toes. So oh. that every single toe, every single toe was covered by an individual sock. <laughs> And for me, that was the best creation since sliced bread, because that means that even with my flops, even with my sandals, I could wear socks. So for my kids, it would definitely be toe socks, glove socks, and it would be personalized because I'm extremely sentimental. And so each toe would have a word that describes them. So it would be funny, it would be talented, it would be kind, it would be resilient, it would be uh, humorous, it would be and every single toe would be tailor-made or specifically designed with a word that describes them so that while they're walking in their socks grounded on the earth, grounded in humility, grounded in the sense of humanity, on their feet, is affirmations if that makes sense beautiful
0: and i want to thank you for this podcast because what what i get from you is that you have respect and you honor you have just honored your children's characteristics and you have Mm -hmm. honored your father and other people Mm -hmm. and you honor Mm -hmm. your own journey and that is what Mm -hmm. i wish to take from this
1: Thank you. Thank you. May we take it? In South Africa, we have a, a, a word or a title that comes from the Zulu culture, it, 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 Zulu language. It's called Ubuntu. I am mm-hmm. because of you. Yes. I cannot exist without you. So that is the message Ubuntu. We cannot without each other. So, with humility, with humanity, with the concept of we all we donate blood because each other's blood can save one another's life so with that spirit of ubuntu which i think ubuntu and the attitude of gratitude are the two key areas and two key themes that i have chosen to live my life with
0: thank you jawahir thank you for having me and to our listeners it was good of you to join us if you found this episode helpful please share it with someone you care about If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettsneiman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart Marie Sneyman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.